I think you're torturing the computer. Well, fortunately, your computer can't think unless maybe it's using neural networks for branch prediction, which, you know, probably it is. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor. We're going to go around and do quick introductions, and then we're going to hop into a couple announcements and then an interview with our second guest. So first we'll go to Bob, and then we'll go to Adam. My name is Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast. I am not a developer or anything special like that, so my questions may be fairly elementary, but uh, I do what I can and take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm Adam Brzezewski. I work professionally doing APL. And I've been doing APL, just not professionally, all my life. Also take a great interest in other array languages and the design of array languages. And my name is Connor Hoekstra. I am a professional C++ developer uh, and a huge J slash APL slash K slash Q slash potentially a couple more languages after this episode uh, enthusiast. And yeah, uh, I'm super excited to get to today, today's interview. But first, we have a couple announcements. Um, We'll kick it to Adam first, and, and then I've got one announcement after that. Well, I just want to mention that while APL has had a quiet period for many decades now, um, Stack Exchange just published their Stack Overflow uh, developer survey. And for the first time, APL is on there. And that's, there's some really interesting uh, statistics, including um, that APL is fairly popular among the people who use it and that APLs are very well paid. Yeah, it's uh, it's super interesting. Yeah, just to give a couple more uh, sort of data points. So I find most interesting on this survey the sort of most loved versus most dreaded programming languages. Uh, the top five are Rust, Clojure, TypeScript, Elixir, and Julia. Um, and then APL is sort of a, a down around the halfway mark, uh, but it's above some popular languages, my day-to-day C++. It's right above Java. And then more interestingly, it ranks above um, other sort of array languages. Obviously, Julia, I guess, sort of wins because it's in the top five. Um, But APL would arguably be the second array language. And then below that are both R and MATLAB. So um, we'll definitely leave a link to this survey in the show notes for folks that want to go check it out. Um, I find it pretty interesting. And... The last announcement, I keep on forgetting to announce this. I've meant to do it for like the last three episodes. But we will have a link in the show notes to a GitHub uh, repo that is a list of companies that are using array languages. So if you work for a company and it's public knowledge that they use APL, J, K, Q, or another array language, um, and you want that listed on this uh, GitHub repo, feel free to go uh, create a PR. It's really, really simple. As long as you have a GitHub account, you can do that. And it's pretty cool to be able to see all the different places in the world. So uh, one of the most common questions, you know, array language developers get is, you know, do actual companies use APL or J? And here you can go see. And if you're potentially looking for work, you can go to these sites and look at the career um, offerings to see if they're hiring. But with that, uh, the announcements out of the way, we're going to hop into our interview. So today our guest is Marshall Lockbaum. Uh, who I don't know super well. I know Adam knows him a lot better. Uh, but uh, Marshall was mentioned on our previous e- episode with Henry uh, when talking about Jay uh, because Henry was one, or uh, Marshall was one of Henry's students. And uh, what I know about Marshall is that at one point he worked for Dialog APL um, and he has created two array languages himself. I and I believe it's pronounced BQN. I messed that up if you were listening to the last episode, but it's apparently if you're making a pun, you can say bacon. 
Um, but with that, I'll kick it over to Marshall. And if you want, just maybe start with a brief history of your sort of array language journey till today. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, my, my array language journey does start with my teacher, Henry Rich. Um, I, have, I still have to fight the impulse not to call him Mr. Rich, but he's Henry. Um, so uh, I, I first learned, um, J was my first programming language. Before that, I'd done uh, some, some work on the, on the programming calculator, the TI basic. But other than that, um, I started with J. Um, Henry, as he uh, discussed in the in the last episode, you should check it out. Um, it was uh, teaching programming at my high school, Raleigh Charter, and uh, he offered actually. I knew him from doing math competitions, so he offered to teach me in a self study course on J. And the summer before, I read his book and I learned J. Um, and so that that was it. Uh, and I could. Uh, I could program. I was using I was using trains and rank. I think I was using nested rank within a, a month or two of starting with with Henry. So I got started with J pretty quick. Um, then my kind of next big thing with the J community was uh, when I presented at their conferences in 2012 and 2014. So that's uh, when I got to uh, meet everybody involved in J and uh, and sort of get to know about that community. I met uh, Roger Hui, which was pretty cool. Um, and also at those conferences, I found out about um, about Dialog and Dialog APL. So they, uh, it was only one year, um, maybe it was 2012. I'm not sure, but uh, Jay and Morton came and gave a presentation on that. So that's that's when I learned that at least Dialog existed, and uh, that was the first time I think that I heard about using uh, bit booleans to implement arrays. Um, so after that, I went to college. Um, I was uh, I was really interested in programming languages for a while because I uh, because I started with J and I was thinking well J is so great um, and nobody knows about J what other great languages don't anybody know about um, so I I started using a bunch of languages Factor is uh, one kind of obscure one that I remember a lot um, and I also started implementing my own languages so uh, uh, around 2012 maybe even before. Um, I began work on I, which we have J and K, so I won't say that I is a cross product between J and K, but it's something like that. Um, and I made I. I is a really terrible name for a programming language, so I <laughs> saved you from from the mistake of doing that. But fortunately, it's also a terrible programming language. Um, I was really uh, an exploratory um, thing where I was really getting deep into tacit programming. Um, and what I found out is that you really shouldn't get that deep into tacit programming. Uh, you should use variables and stuff. So, but um, I learned a lot. I, I started working on just-in-time compilation with I, which was uh, in uh, maybe 2015 or 2016, which was pretty cool. Um, and then after that, I, I graduated college and was looking for a job. And eventually, I remembered about dialogue that I'd seen at the J conference. And I checked their website, and just a few months earlier, they'd posted uh, this job listing for a programming language implementer, and I said, that sounds like me. So um, I knew that uh, Roger was working with them, and I emailed him, and he said, oh, yeah, you should apply. I'll put in the good word. And, and so I did, and I was uh, pretty soon hired at Dialog. Um, and I started, so there I worked on... Uh, 
all sorts of implementation stuff. Um, that was at least half the time that I spent there was um, was just speeding things up, which was uh, I learned a whole lot that way. Um, developed a bunch of techniques that I haven't seen anywhere else, so so a lot of new stuff. Um, and also another thing that I did is start to uh, introduce new functionality. Well, I, I don't think I added anything that was really new, but I I worked to introduce some some stuff that had been developed at IP Sharp um, for Sharp APL, then it later made it into J. So uh, that's why um, over and under over over and atop, not under, um, and the uh, it's called unique mask in dialogue. Uh, made it in at least as of now is uh, is because I pushed for those to be included and implemented them. So I I did a little bit of work on design. Um, and eventually, uh, things were not really working out at Dialog, and eventually I decided to leave. Um, just before this, kind of coincidentally, I'd been working, um, so we started at Dialog, the uh, Young APLers group, which was, um, which was all the Young APLers at Dialog. Um, and we had, uh, we'd done some meetings. The first thing we did was actually set up the APL wiki, so that's great. You can, uh, Maybe you've already seen some articles there, um, and I've contributed a lot to that. Um, but the the second big thing we did was start to discuss, you know, how would we take APL further? So every a APLers are always thinking about, you know, APL has got all these issues. What if what if we could start again? Um, and with APL, this is really pressing because APL was designed in you know five or ten years, and then then there was APL three hundred and sixty. And nobody's ever really felt bold enough to break compatibility, or several people have felt bold enough to break compatibility with APL 360, and uh, and I'm one of them too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the major attempts there are um, A plus is the only thing that I'd really say is an APL but breaks compatibility. Um, then there's J and, and A plus. Uh, I haven't been able to get it to run. It's um, it's maybe still used at Morgan Stanley. This is Arthur Whitney's APL before he did K. Um, and there's J, and I mean K is getting pretty far from the idea of APL. So um, so we were talking about how how would we take it, fix up the mistakes, and make something that is still APL but that's new and that that doesn't have all the issues that we've discovered over 50 years of APL practice. Um, so, um, yeah, we had, we had a lot of discussions along those lines, and I was, uh, always been interested in language design, so I was designing a bunch of things. Um, and when I left, I decided to take this and do it, and I called it BQN. Um, and that is, uh, so I guess we'll, we'll talk more about BQN in the questions section, but that's what I'm working on now. It's been, um... A little over a year now since I started, um, and BQN is doing pretty well, I think. So we have a, an implementation that, that pretty much works. Um, I've written a lot of things in it. It's uh, got a self-hosted compiler, um, and we've got a chat room with, uh, with I think, uh, about 50 members if you remove duplicates, um, and some people that are fairly active. So uh, BQN is really moving along, which is really cool. That's where I am now. All right, so once again, I, f I feel like this is going to be a pattern. I have a thousand questions, um, but like the the most obvious and 
one which you sort of just alluded to was uh, was BQN. So I'll, I'll ask a short version before I ask, you know, what are the major differences and sort of can you compare and give like a, a summary of the language? Um, but where does BQN, I, you know, I've read the README, so I know what it stands for, but I won't steal your thunder. So what does BQN stand for and, and where does the name come from? Well, um, yeah, better questions notation is a backronym, in fact. Um, I, I kind of wanted to leave this as like a, a shadowy rumor that no one will talk about, but I, I put it in too many places. So um, <laughs> the way I came up with the name BQN was I thought, well, all right. Um, this was while I was still at Dialogue, even. Um, I thought, all right, I'm working on this next APL. What do I call it? And of course, you know, the obvious answer is APL++ or whatever. Or, um, but then I thought about, you know, how C leads to D and... Well, J doesn't actually lead to K, but and so on. And so I took uh, took APL and I moved it forward and I got BQN. And I said, well, BQN, that sounds pretty good. It's um, I came up, you know, big queries and better questions notation. That's a big questions notation is what I ended up with. Um, I like it because it suggests that not only you're solving big questions, but you have big questions about the notation. So it's a little tongue in cheek. Um, and I said also, oh, you can pronounce it like bacon. So there's even a food pun like apple. Um, and uh, after some half hour or an hour of thinking about this, I realized that uh, the letter that comes after L is M. Um, I think it would be much more logical <laughs> for M to come first because it's, it's the letter with two humps. But um, oh, BQM is a horrible, horrible name. Uh, <laughs> and so I stuck with BQN. I was I, that, that's really two sad things just happened there. One, I was really disappointed in myself that I hadn't made the observation that it was just a one rotate on the characters. And then two, I'm sad that I didn't realize that it's not a one rotate on all of the characters. <laughs> I just took your word for it. Um, but wow, I'm very I should have noticed I should have noticed partially that. Um, I, I'm also impressed that you're thinking of reordering the alphabet because of the number of humps in the letters. <laughs> Well, that, that was my excuse afterwards. I mean, I, I assume that's why I thought that N came after L, but who am I to say? It's always good to look things up, of course. <laughs> well, I figured it out on my own. It just took me a while. <laughs> I remember when we were, when we were in that uh, young APLs group, and um, it's, it was a really fitting name, Big Questions Notation, because we were questioning everything. We We, were, we even had this kind of gradual thing of just tweaking existing APL a little bit to questioning absolute everything. APLs and, and all APL derivatives, almost all APL derivatives are famous for running from right to left, as people call it, or long right scope or right associativity. And and you even question that, right? And so it really is big questions notation. Yeah, well, in fact, the, um, the left to right thing, uh, I didn't really feel bold enough to question. Um, so when I did I, it ran, um, it ran left to right, um, which I like at least for I, but I don't know if it works in APL. So that's, um, the idea of BQN was to keep the essence of APL intact to, um, to make something that was, uh, that kept the strengths, but was better. Um, so I, I still don't know because I haven't tried it, whether it's, whether you really want to change the order. But I decided that was just too much. Um, but otherwise, pretty much, I've just made a clean break with APL. And it's important if you're coming to BQN to know that 
Um, it's not APL. You can definitely, your APL knowledge will help you a lot, but it's a new language that you're going to have to learn. Um, so, and I've thought a bit about making a version of BQN that's closer to APL. And the problem is, which I guess we'll get to, there are just too many differences. So I can make, um, I can make it line up in, the, in most of the characters so that, uh, so that maybe it would look like APL, but it really wouldn't be the same. You'd just be running into all these gotchas all the time. So um, I, do, I keep thinking about this, but I keep thinking also that I don't actually want to do it. So Then I'm not the only one keeping thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess, yeah, what are the, you know, and even for our listeners, I think, well, maybe I'm not sure, Bob, how much you've, time you've spent on the GitHub repo, but uh, talk us through, you know, the similarities and differences, even as far to mention, you know, um, you know, Jay obviously uses the digraphs and APL uses the Unicode symbols, uh, you know, start from there and then, and then go in terms of like wherever you want to go. Um, yeah, so BQN is more like APL than J, even though I started with J. Um I've come to dislike a lot of things about J. Um, so one is that uh, it's got this, uh, well, J didn't even initially have functions. It was designed to use all tacit programming, kind of like I. Um, I didn't even know that when I started I. But um, So they've got a function syntax that is, uh, it's not actually a syntax. It's an operator that you call that then reads a string from your source file if you want to do a multi-line function and then turns that into a function. Um, so that's pretty messy, and uh, I think that makes it a lot harder to organize your code. Um, so in that way, BQN is a lot more like Defense. It's really the functional style is based on Defense. As for differences from APL, um, well, and also J, the, uh, the really big ones are, first, BQN has a context-free grammar, um, and second, uh, it, it changes the array model. So it uses neither the nested array model from APL nor the boxed, uh, boxed flat array model from Sharp and J. Uh, it uses uh, what's the, the based array model. Um, I didn't actually name this. It was named uh, well before the, the modern idea of based, but I, I think it is kind of based, so that's cool. Um, so to, to start with the context-free grammar, the idea is, um, well, First, I'll say what it means that APL doesn't have a context-free grammar. In APL, when you run an expression, it, um, it goes right to left, and it, it reads each part of the expression. And then it says, what's the value of this thing? And then it says, based on that, what do I do with it? So it reads an array, then it reads a function, then it reads another function. It says, OK, now I know I can call this right function on the array. Um, and then maybe the function on the left is going to be called with one or two arguments. Um, so that um, the value of the expression is uh, definitely a form of context that means that the grammar isn't context-free. And so what that means is that uh, you can't say, you can't just look at an expression and say what operations you're going to do to find the value of that expression. You have to know also what, like, all the names in it stand for. Um, and so this is... Uh, this makes it harder to read because you need to know this context to even figure out how to parse things. Um, and it makes it harder to execute because, um, because every time that it's running, the, uh, whatever's the implementation, which for APL is always an interpreter, is going to have to check this value and then figure out how it fits into the syntax. Um, and the, uh, 
having variables is even a really um, a particularly bad form of context because um, these variable values they're only get ever, ever going to be known at runtime. So it's not just there's a grammar, but it happens to not be context free. It's there's there's completely you can't do it without this context. You could be getting your variable from a file or whatever. Um, and even in the same program, a variable can do one thing and then another. So the way an expression's parsed could change. Uh, so BQN fixes that, uh, which K also does this, I need to point out. But BQN has a context-free grammar, which tries to preserve the APL model of thinking. K isn't so strong about that. Um, preserve this APL model of syntax while allowing you to, uh, to just look at an expression and see what it does. And um, the way it works is that uh, it says the, uh, what's called in BQN the role. In APL, you'd use the type for both the actual value type and, and what role it serves in the expression. But BQN separates this into the type and the role. And so we say the, the role of an expression is always completely static. So for a primitive, it's, um, it's whatever the role is. If it's a function, it's a function. If it's a modifier, it's a modifier, and so on. Um, for uh, the, the more interesting and kind of distinctive thing is that for a name, it uh, depends on how you spell it. So if you write ABC, um, you can write it uh, with capital or lowercase letters. That's always the same variable. But if you write it with a lowercase initial letter, in that case, it's treated as a subject, what an APL would call an array. Um, and if you write it with an uppercase letter, it's a function. And if, if you want to make it a modifier, which is like an operator, you put a underscore on the left or the right. Um, and you'll notice even the vocabulary I've reworked to um, usually to make it more direct, I guess. Um, I try to make it so that things are just describe in English what they are. So a lot of the time, instead of monadic and dyadic, um, I allow these those two. But I also just call it a function with one argument and with two arguments. So I just say what it is. Um, so but yeah, this, uh, this syntactic role concept um, makes it a lot easier to read the code. And then another thing that's uh, probably the best thing about it is that it also allows you to, um, to switch the roles. So you can, you can use functions as, uh, as anything you want. You can use arrays as anything you want. So for example, you can call an array as a function. And um, what that does is just return the value of the array. Um, but also, you can use a function as an array. And so as a result, you can pass functions as arguments and do uh, kind of real functional programming where functions are really first-class values. And so that means you can put functions and arrays and all sorts of stuff. And um, there's even a modifier that, uh, that basically requires you to put functions and arrays, uh, which is called choose. So um, maybe if you're familiar with J, there's this, uh, there's this thing called agenda, where you string functions together into gerunds, which are, is an array that represents the function. Um, BQN has choose, where you directly put the functions into an array, and then you have uh, an index to select which function you want to call. Um, so that's much simpler in BQN. You don't have to add this gerund concept. You just have a list of functions. Well, so this is this is just backing up to the the lowercase uppercase. So say say I've got uh, I want to do some run some statistics, and I type in AVG in capital letters for my average function. And then I type in median, you know, MED for median, and then a couple others. You're saying that those as functions, whenever typed with a capital letter, 
act as functions, uh, but I can throw those in a list and I can do that just as simply by lower casing the first letter of each of those functions? Yeah. Um, to put them in a list, you don't even have to do that because um, BQN has a list notation, which uh, Adam's working on for APL as well. But um, So what, that, that's sort of like half experimental right now or something? Yeah, uh, well, it has a release candidate. Kind of, there's there are utilities that work with it, but it's not um, it's not in a released version of the language yet. That's, that's um, super interesting because I I don't have a full uh, list of languages that uh, have like a deline delineation between uppercase and lowercase, but I know that Go, you know, uppercase functions are allowed to be exported or vice versa. So like if you oh, if yeah. you try and export like a lowercase one or the other, like it gives you a compile error saying you know it has to be uppercase. But that's the only other language that I know that does something with like the casing of, of your, your functions. So that's, that's really cool. Uh, anyways, okay, back to you. Yeah, these are, there are other, like some languages use uppercase letters for types and things. But then it's just that there are two completely different classes of names that can't interact. So if you use an uppercase letter, you're in the type world. And if you use a lowercase one, you're in the value world. Um, with BQN, it's all the same. It's just how you choose to spell it determines what it does in the expression. Um, and to, I said, in, in a list, you don't even care about the spelling because you can use any role for an element of a list. But um, the main thing that uh, writing a function in lowercase does, so if you had, I don't know, some, some function that does some crazy statistical thing, and you might pass a parameter to it that's either the mean or the standard deviation or something, then you can actually just pass it as an argument instead of... Um, forcing this thing to be a modifier. Um, right, okay. And uh, Adam's actually the one who, who came up with this idea, so I should point this out. Um, he's actually always been a fan of case-insensitive identifiers in general, so BQN is case-insensitive, except this one thing. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe if we go the other way around, let's say we have a variable, uh, which means it has an array value, say, five, and it's called lowercase a. Now, if we put uh, lowercase a uh, by itself, then we get back that value 5. But if we spell it uppercase a instead, it's still 5, but it's, it's the function 5. What does that mean? It means it's a constant function. No matter what argument you throw at it, it returns 5. And now we can kind of understand it backwards as well. We can take a function that we've defined with uppercase, and we spell it in lowercase, and now it just returns that value, that function value. It never applies it. It just represents itself like any other array. And, and to me, that part sounds more like the gerunds in J, right? You've got a, an atomic version of that function. Yeah, except that um, at, as the language is actually running, so this is purely syntax. When the language is actually running, there's just a function. Um, and what it does is the syntax tells you, all right, do I pass this function as an argument? Do I put it in a list? Or do I call it as a function? And so you can call anything as a function. If you try to call a modifier, you get an error, but you can call a function or, a, or an array or a number, which is the other. Numbers are not arrays in BQN. That's the next thing. Um, but so yeah, you can, you can get these cross roles that allow you to do functional programming. And it's still, it's not um, quite as easy as, as functional programming in Lisp because um, you still have to, in Lisp, the parentheses tell you what's a function, right? So the first thing in every parenthesis is a function or 
I don't know Lisp very well, but maybe it's a macro or something. Um, whereas in BQN, if you have something in a variable, you can always change its role really easily. But if it's an expression, then maybe you have to do some more work. Um, I, I think another thing to, to point out is that uh, the gerunds in, in J, yes, you can get something that acts like an array that consists of functions. But what if you want something that acts like an array consisting of, of adverbs or conjunctions? those that are called modifiers, operators, um, you can't because they're fundamentally incompatible with, with each other. And there's a whole thing, been for years already, discussion in, in, in APL that functions take arrays and operators take functions and what takes operators, that's that problem. And by being allowed to switch roles of things, then that whole problem just goes away. Yeah, the gerunds are really tied to the verbs. You don't when you get a level above that, they're not not really applicable as much anymore. Yeah, and the other thing is a gerund, like, despite the fact that you might never use it this way, it is still an array. So you can't actually tell the difference between if you're taking a value from the user, is it is it a gerund or is it did they just write an array that happens to have some strings in it? Um, so uh, when you're using the actual values, I think it works out a lot simpler. So I think that was that was sort of uh, your explanation that started from the CFG. You also mentioned the based array model that is different from from J and APL. So yeah. Um, so quick overview. Um, there's also an APL wiki page on on array models that I wrote. So it tells you my side of the story at least. Um, I wrote it though before I came up with the based array model. So it's not hopefully it's not but so biased. Um, so at the beginning, of course, we had APL 360, which had the completely flat array model where everything's an array and, um, and you have um, your array always contains either numbers or characters. And that's it. That's the whole story. I mean, you can imagine something where arrays can contain a mix of numbers or characters, but that's a pretty minor variation. Um, in the early 1980s, people started um, getting pretty serious about, well, we want to store arrays in our arrays. Um, and they said, how does this work? Now, if you're starting with a scalar language, like you know Python, JavaScript, Java, any of these, what they all do, I mean, they all have one-dimensional arrays, but it's kind of the same. What they all do is say, well, an array is a container, and it contains other values. So in the language, you've got your numbers, and your strings, and your arrays, and so on. Um, and that's it, they're done. Um, that model works. Um, but the, the problem with, to, as far as I, I'm kind of reverse engineering this, I think the problem people ran into with APL 360 is that when you start out with the idea that everything's an array, you can't just take that away and maintain backwards compatibility. So they can't then add an individual number thing because um, then, uh, well, in APL 360, a number is a scalar array that contains a number. And um, those might behave differently. For example, in BQN, when you call range on a number, um, you, get, uh, you get what you get in, in APL calling IOTA. If you call it on an enclosed number, then it treats that as a list. So, um, so it gives you a, actually a multidimensional with exactly one dimension, but a multidimensional range where each value is not a um, single number, but instead a list of numbers. Um, so you can't actually adopt that model. 
And what people did instead was they went to either the nested array model with floating arrays, where it says, um, yes, every value is an array. And to include numbers in the language, we're going to say that a number is the same as it's itself enclosed. So they sort of add numbers to the language, but make them equal to an existing value already. Um, and I mean, this has its issues because like, uh, if you enclose something and you get the same thing back, that's pretty weird because you, you should be saying, I'm adding an extra layer of structure around that. But then the language goes in and says, uh, no, you're not, this is a number. Um, and so that, that kind of causes some subtle issues. And then on the other side, what the people at IP Sharp did was um, they said, all right, we're going to add a new type of element that you can have, which is a box. Um, and still in the language, you can describe this differently, but I'd say that in the language, everything is an array. It's an array of numbers, characters, or boxes. Um, and a box is still this atomic value. You can't, actually, you can't actually use a box. You can use an array of boxes, and maybe it's a scalar. And then if you want to, you can go inside the box. And um, this, is, uh, this is at least an inductive type. So it's kinda, it has better mathematical properties. But the base case is an array, which is really complicated. So you have this base case, which is all your data is either an array of characters or an array of numbers or an array of boxes. And furthermore, a box might contain any value. So BQN does the thing that, that other languages that didn't start with arrays would have done anyway, which is to say, all right, we've got our scalar types, we've got numbers, we've got functions, we've got namespaces. And then an array is just a data structure that can contain any other value. So it's actually simpler than either of these two models. Um, the problem is that it's not backwards compatible with APL 360, but as I've said, uh, I'm breaking compatibility, so I can do that. Um, and so that's kind of, I can see why it didn't go that way, because people are trying to, they're just trying to extend APL, but um, that's how I think I, it should have gone. Um, and another way I'd describe this is to say, well, if you want to add layers of nesting above, if you want to be able to put arrays inside an arrays, you have to be able to go down to the lowest level of nesting. You have to be able to reach something that's zero times nested that's not an array. Um, and so all these kind of subtle problems and inconveniences that you get, um, not that, um, so BQN has, still has the inconvenience that you have to keep track of, you know, how many levels of nesting you do have. So you have to distinguish between a number and the enclosed number, which in the nested array model, you don't because you can't. Um, but I think these are, these are more fundamental differences. So you're saying, well, there's a difference, but I actually have to keep track of this because it matters as opposed to um, just places where the array models kind of, uh, I mean, I don't really want to say clutch, but it, where, where there's an adjustment made to the array model that changes it relative to the simplest case to make it match something that really it shouldn't match. So, so in J, one thing I've always noticed, and this might be solved by the way you're approaching arrays in BQN, um, for a character string, say I've got three characters, A, B, C, and I enclose them in quotes, now I've got a three, uh, a, a list that is three, you know, it's, it's, that's effectively a character array. 
that has a length of three. But you've got a, a list of boxes. I've got a list of boxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I reduced that to two. I've still got that. I reduced that to one. And in J now, um, I don't have a list of one anymore. I have a single character. That's just a notation. So... That's just the input notation. It's not yeah, the fundamental um, thing in the array model. You yeah. certainly can have a one-element character okay. vector. That's not that. No, I can make one, but I'm I just think... saying as I reduce them, is that is that where the induction breaks down when I go from two to one? Um, no, I, I'd say that's an issue with the, the string notation and also an issue with strand notation specifically. So um, BQN also fixes that, which, um, again, is something else that can, can introduce other inconveniences, but... Um, so in BQN, you use double quotes for a string, and that's always, always a list of characters. And then you use single quotes for a character. Um, so that's, uh, that's done, and you don't have to worry about that inconsistency. You have to remember to keep double quotes and single quotes straight, but characters and strings are different. Um, and similarly with the list notation, I actually, um, and a lot of APLers come to this and say, oh no, this is, uh, this is wrong. I've taken out stranding. So if you write three, four, five in BQN, you get a um, you get a syntax error where it says uh, double subjects, and it asks if you possibly want to use the uh, the little smile character um, that's like a parenthesis on its side, uh, which I call a ligature. Um, and yes, you do. Uh, so that's uh, BQN's explicit stranding notation. Um, Although, I, I said I fixed the problem. And explicit stranding is the notation that doesn't fix the problem. It still has this one element versus two element problem, where if you write one thing, well, you didn't write any ligature characters at all. So of course, it's not a strand. So it's just a thing. If you write two things stranded together, then you get a list of two. Um, but at least it's a little more obvious, because as opposed to using just nothing for stranding, you have this character that indicates, OK, I'm forming a list. And then the other list notation with the angle brackets is, um, is more like a typical list notation. And um, that always, uh, you can form an empty list with it, you can form a one element list, two element list, and so on. Uh, so two questions. Um, I've heard of stranding uh, notation, but I'm inferring that that is creating a list of numbers by putting spaces between them. And that you, you are doing, you're replacing uh, the spaces with the sideways parentheses or the horizontal, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, not necessarily just for numbers. In um, J and K, it is just numbers. So they have this particular stranding, which is actually considered part of token formation, which I think is pretty weird. Um, but it, uh, when, when you put numbers next to each other, those automatically form a numbered list as part of the source code. Um, and then in, in a nested APL like Dialog, um, pretty much any APL you'd use today, um, the the stranding can be between any two values. Um, this was uh, Jim's Brown, Jim Brown's thing that he was really big about was that uh, it should be general. It should um, it should be you know a fundamental part of the language. Which I mean, I agree. I agree with that. I just don't agree with it, that you should write it without using a character for it. Um, Interesting. So BQ and yeah, BQ and stranding is more like a nested APL where you can strand any two values together um it's just that you have to and what is the what is the downside of uh upgrading from only allowing literal numbers to allowing a variable name or something in in your list like why why because like, i do i have in the literature read that there was a big war between camps back in like the late 70s slash early 80s and that 
I don't want to say that that's what led to um, Iverson's departure from IBM to IPSA, IP Sharp, but like I do know that there was two camps. Yeah, well, he was clearly thinking differently in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, what is there a downside, or is this just like a matter of opinion? I think I can answer that. <laughs> it's it, and it's not just about numbers. It's it, it's about everything, um, and that is sometimes you have. And firstly, we should point out it's not space that does this. It's adjacency that causes trending. So if you have two things that won't merge together, so it's not two two names of variables or two numbers where the digits will run into each other, uh, then uh, you don't need a space. So for example, in, in APL, you can write, uh, quote, a quote, five, and that they're adja immediately adjacent to each other. There's no space in between them. Right. The problem is that, that this has priority in binding in uh, at least some APLs. Um, and what happens then is if you have a... Um, an operator and the operator takes an operand or we can call it a modifier or an adverb or a conjunction in whichever language with lingo we're talking. Um, and that operand, which is an array, ends up being next to the argument to the array. Then, then before the operator has a chance to sort of say grab its operand array, the two arrays that are now next to each other join together due to stranding. So a classic example, this sounds very dry, a classic example of this is if you, if you use an APL, the power operator, it's kind of common. Um, so you would have a function and then power operator and a number because you want to, uh, it, it's like function power in, in mathematics. You apply this, this function this many times. And then comes the array you actually want to apply this function on. Now you end up having two arrays next to each other and they bind together to a, one giant array which is meaningless in the context. And finally, you end up having function, power operator, and then some giant meaningless array, which is not at all what you meant. Yeah. And, and this tends to be a, a common cause of both confusion and leading to ugly code trying to work around this. Um, I think actually I ran into this exact problem. I won't describe it in detail, but <laughs> I was solving a leak code problem that was uh, basically given a list of numbers, uh, convert that list of numbers into digits. So if you've got like one, 10 and a hundred, uh, you want to end up with a list of one, one zero and one zero zero all in like single digit form and then sum that up. And then it'll tell you n number of times to basically repeat that process. And in there, I ended up with like exactly what you said, the power operator to the power of whatever n is, and then uh, also an array. And because uh, I think it actually starts as a string, so I needed to do like quad A or quad C or something like that, anyways. But then when I when I hit enter, it went bam bam, like you've got a problem. And then the fix, because I was just you know editing and praying, and I'm a noob, uh, was to put like the the right tack in or something to separate the two, and that seemed to work. Um, so yeah. So in J and in in APLs that don't allow this stranding or list notation other than for numbers, there's less of an issue, but it can still happen. So if you have something that has parentheses and so on on the right, uh, then it won't join together. But you could still have something that's a literal list of numbers or a single number as your starting array, and then you're applying something with, and it can actually happen on the left as well. Uh, it can if you have an a, an operator that takes an array operand on the left, then 
yeah, then you, then you can have a, a left argument that clashes with it. Another one in, in dialog APL is the at operator. You can, you can apply something at some indices, and there often the indices will clash with what you're applying it to. Um, and so by, by making stranding explicit, then you can have adjacent, I don't know if we call them tokens, items, whatever you want to call them, and, and they don't join together, and it just looks much nicer. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, the thing about this is that actually you run into this problem a lot less than you use stranding. So in theory, you could say stranding is more convenient, but the issue is it's less consistent. So what happens is that you have to think about stranding even when you're not doing stranding, even when you're just calling the power operator. Um, and that's something that I find with BQN. Um, I've made a lot of decisions to, now APL was pretty consistent, but I've improve the consistency as much as I can. Um, and what that means is that there's just less different things that I have to worry about when writing my code. So you could call that cognitive load. What I found after a few months of working with DQN is that I'm just, uh, I'm focusing more on what I'm actually writing and not what I'm trying to avoid writing. So it's just um, so much less worrying and uh, thinking about other potential edge cases goes on. And that, of course, means that I can write ever more inscrutable, tacit um, combinations of, you know, all sorts of nonsense that then does like a recursion and self-modifying code and stuff. Um, and so that's really beneficial. Yeah, we should we should point out, too, uh, in case we have some, like myself, uh, array beginners, the power operator that's been mentioned a couple times, it is mind-blowing. Um, it's one of the coolest things. Like, if I had to rank, like, the top 10 things that I discovered up to this point about learning languages or learning, like, APL, uh, it basically, like, enables you to put your function to the power of a number. So if you need to do some function five times, you just do power five. But what's awesome about it is that you can also do to the power of negative one and in invert a function, which is, like, it's mind blowing in certain cases. Like the other day I was trying to figure out, oh, like, so there's a op or a function in APL called where, where if you give it a, uh, a Boolean mask of ones and zeros, it'll return you the indices that correspond to the ones in that mask. Um, but I needed the opposite. I was like, ah, oh, like that's got to exist in APL. So I'm like, I'm looking for, you know, what's the function that does that. And then I realize, wait a second, will that work with like power to the negative one? And sure enough, I typed it in and it worked. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's the most amazing thing in the world. Like why no other, does any other language have something where you can take a function and like invert what it does? Like that's, it's anyways, that's my, my tangent is over. You're lucky because uh, I was the one who implemented that. Not as much of a tangent oh, really? as you thought. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, yeah, oh, I added man. that to dialogue. Um, I keep, it keeps coming up on the J mailing list and I've, uh, I've tried to push uh, it as an idea for J, but I don't think it's in there yet. Um, oh, wait, so that didn't come. I assume that like 90% of the new things that get added to APL come from J. So that was something that like well, didn't come from J and that it, you implemented? It came from me writing, reading the J mailing list years earlier, I guess. But um, yes, I implemented that in um, version 17 or 18, probably 18. Um, uh, I guess it was at the same time as where it was extended to handle non-Booleans. So probably version 18. Um, and, um, I've been a, I've thought, you know, that should be a standard programming tool for a long time. Um, and so I got the chance to do it in dialogue. Uh, Roger has actually been against it. And his reason for that is that it's not a unique inverse. The, um, 
because you can always add zeros to the end and it won't change the result of where. So you don't uh, really know what length mm. the inverse should give. I actually um, ran into that exact issue, but then I was like, that's just a simple like yeah. uh, take take in. Yeah, so then yeah. you just use take. And I use this, uh, I use where inverse in BQN all the time. You can, um, now BQN, uh, not only can you take, uh, and I call power repeat, which I like a lot better. Um, again, it's more straightforward. It's less mathematical. Um, but not only can you take repeat minus one times, uh, there's its own symbol for, for inverse, which is a superscript equals. There's no superscript minus one character, unfortunately, but superscript equals is all right. So you write slash superscript equals, um, and that's your where inverse. And that's in the compiler all over the place. Uh, or, well, you know, probably just two or three times, but um, it's used a few times. And, and yeah, you have to get the length right. But um, I think that's really powerful, especially as a tool of thought. Um, and the way I think about it a lot is that it's actually infinite length, and it just has as many trailing zeros as you want. So as a tool for studying... Um, for studying certain kinds of uh, list of natural numbers, it's uh, it's really valuable to know that that's a concept. With regards to the, the infinite list, another thing uh, Marshall implemented while that dialogue uh, was exactly this: that uh, at least one of the common use cases for the where inverse is to use uh, this boolean that comes out as a partitioning vector. With the with the partition enclose primitive, mm -hmm. and so an extension he implemented to partition enclose uh, is that you can omit trailing zeros, and it just assumes zero for the rest. So that problem actually goes away. You yeah. don't need to do the overtake um, to get extra zeros. You can just use it directly. Yeah, the thing I was going to say is if we're if we've lost like the the array curious folks, uh, I'll try and add some links that sh show examples. Um, in try APL of of you know how where works, which is actually uh, it's iota underbar. So for anyone who loves iota, it's got like a you know visual relationship. Uh, a lot of C plus plus devs love iota because we have it as well. We stole it from APL. Um, but yeah, we'll try and leave links because it's it's probably if you haven't seen it before, it's very hard to follow what we're talking about <laughs> in terms of where where inverse and ones and zeros going to numbers. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an extremely powerful concept, and um, yeah, I had no idea that you were the one that implemented that, Marshall. But I've 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 used it once now, and I'm yeah. never going to forget because it's it is actually like of exactly what Adam was saying. Like many times, you can use that to create a mask, and there's so many functions in APL or primitives in APL that require a mask to do something like partitioning or filtering, etc. Um, that yeah, it's it's uh, or I should say compressing. We don't really have filter. Even if you're even if you're an experienced programmer, what you might want to check out is uh, I wrote, while I was doing this partition extension, I wrote a page for the APL wiki called um, Partition Representations, and we'll get a link to that, I'm sure. Um, and that discusses um, this really powerful system where you think about these lists of natural numbers that I was talking about as, uh, as ways to partition a list, and there are four different ways, and they're related by plus scan and where. Uh, so you can go one way with plus scan, and, well, it's it's sort of a weird relationship, but it, you can go around the whole four steps using plus scan and where and plus scan inverse and where inverse. Um, so that's just a really powerful tool. And if you're ever partitioning something, knowing that system tells you pretty much immediately, like, you'll be in one of these four cases, and you want to get to some other one. 
So uh, at that point, you can just apply, you can just look up the diagram even and apply whatever the right transformation is. Wait, let's pause. Plus scan inverse? What does it mean? Oh, so yes. I, say uh, you that's have. That's not too uh, complicated. <laughs> you have like, you know, uh, or yeah, plus scan. So, oh, no, actually, so it's not. I'm thinking take, of like max scan, which is you wouldn't. That be you able, can't invert. You can't but, do, but plus yeah, scan. Yeah, plus scan. So each result is the previous result plus the corresponding number. So to invert it, you just subtract that previous result from the current oh, result. Oh, my God. Inverse scans. Can you, oh. I, 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 the way I think about inverse is, is is kind of like playing Jeopardy. Inverse, when you tell the, the interpreter to do an inverse, it means I'm giving you the, uh, the result and a function. Give me the argument for, that I need to feed to this function so that I get this result. And so, and so the plus scan, right, the, the cumulative sum is a transform. It's a transformation of some data. And I'm basically just asking, what is the list of numbers such that their cumulative sums are these numbers? And it will figure it out. That's so awesome. Oh, man. I'm going to go back on my other podcast, ADSP, because we just, the one that we have coming out on Friday is about inclusive scans, and we've got a couple pre-recorded, but I'm going to be like, Bryce, 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 guess what? Guess what? APL has inverse scans. Can you, oh, man, that is so cool. That is so cool. All right, I got to calm down. Um, See, this is the same thing, I think, except I say, oh, in this other programming language, I should put that idea in there. <laughs> <laughs> and Connor, you mentioned the IOTA uh, underbar and the, and the symbol in IOTA, and um, I'm looking at the clock a bit here. Marshall, you've got to talk about the symbols, the glyphs in BQN. Oh, yeah. They're different. Okay. <laughs> that's all, uh, that's all for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the pretty interesting ones is actually where, because um, I've thought this for a while. Uh, so, for example, J has a, um, it has a grade function and it has a sort function. The grade's monadic and the sort's dyadic. Uh, so it says, um, I can't remember which way it goes. And it turns out that I didn't include this, BQ, this function in BQN, and that's part of the reason. Um, but it takes one argument's order and sorts the other argument according to that. Um, and so those are together. Um, and what I thought for a while was that actually um, the indices are where and replicate have the same relationship. So um, replicate, yeah, replicate tells you all right, the left argument is a number of times to repeat something, and the right argument is the things to repeat. And then where, there's just a right argument, and that's the number of times to repeat. And what you repeat is, um, is sort of the universal value, which is the indices that, um, that would go into it. Um, and so that means because you've repeated indices, then you could take that and use select. So if you have where the left argument and use that to select from the right argument. That's the same as replicate. And of course, where is just replicate with the indices. So they've got this very close relationship. And in BQN, I wrote them both using slash. Um, and if you're wondering, another thing I fixed is that reductions are not slashes. Um, they're, in BQN, all the modifiers are superscripts. All the one modifiers are superscripts. So it's, it's sort of a superscript slash, which is an acute accent. Um, but yeah, so where in replicate I put on the same key, and uh, 
I think this just uh, makes it it makes it more obvious when you transform code, uh, and it's just uh, it helps to form stronger connections when you're thinking about stuff. Can you tell us more about? Because um, I've seen the character set, and yeah, there's definitely a lot of. I don't want to say more like geometric, but just definitely like a whole new set of symbols that um, are completely a departure from the APL Unicode. Where do those come from? And um, yeah. Yeah, regard, regarding the overall feel, um, it's, I did, I think the initial strategy I was taking, um, uh, probably it was Adam said something about, um, you know, the Greek letters are really not good. Um, in addition to just confusing Greek people, uh, they, uh, they confuse other people who don't know Greek letters. Um, and eventually I, I kind of came onto the idea that, you know, really using any sort of letters at all as mathematical operators doesn't make sense because the way we write mathematical operators and the way we write letters is usually completely different. Letters are written with these kind of variable width pin strokes and, um, and mathematics is always, you know, straight lines and geometric figures. So I chose much more geometric symbols for BQN. Um, and that means that kind of uh, BQN gets this this much more technical feel to it. Um, and one way to even describe the difference is to say APL is kind of uh, a fantasy feel. It looks like Tolkien would write APL, um, where BQN is very sci-fi. And uh, I call it an APL for your flying saucer for that reason, and also because I'm hoping to port it so that it's got a runtime in every language, and then I could say, oh, it runs on anything, even a flying saucer could, could run BQN. Um, but yeah, so you get this very geometrical um, feel that's, uh, that doesn't, um, like, that's not what I started with, but I've kind of leaned into that and made it so that, you know, BQN is this sci-fi language. But we'll also talk about the, the roles and the symbols. Yeah, so um, BQN, uh, this was also Adam's idea. Uh, BQN has this nice system where you can see the role of a primitive just by looking at it. So I said, one modifiers are all superscripts. That's a really easy rule. Um, and actually, usually in English, a lot of the times, uh, superscripts end up modifying the thing they come after. So if you've got you know, a superscript one, that's a footnote for the preceding stuff. If you've got a superscript TM, that says whatever comes in front of it's trademarked, uh, and so on. So that's an easy visual association to make, to say that a one modifier binds pretty tightly with the thing that's right to its left. And then um, two modifiers all use unbroken circles. So that's a... Uh, I kept the APL symbols for... Um, I kept one of the APL symbols for reverse and rotate, which is this phi symbol with the circle with the vertical line. I dropped the horizontal line because I don't just, just don't think it looks good. Um, and also because I only needed one because I'm using the leading axis theory like J. Um, and transpose. So the, those are the broken circles because they've got a line through them. Everything with a circle that doesn't have that line through it is a two modifier. So it's the composition. And that's, so you've got the, a top is the composition for mathematics. That's just the small circle. Um, over is a large circle. There's uh, these other really cool characters that are the, um, I call them before and after, I guess, that are uh, circles with little lines coming out. Um, so those are asymmetric, and they tell you um, there's one side that's going to be applied first, and the line points towards that. I think I've seen those, yeah, and they look really nice. Um... They are, they make tacit programming and, you know, confusing people incredibly easier because... Uh, 
you can, I mean, well, okay, it's harder to confuse people, but you can get more confusing accomplished because you don't have to work through your own confusion. Um, <laughs> uh, because it's so so much visually telling you what happens, whereas uh, when you do tested programming and dialogue, I mean, it's great that this was also uh, something that I really pushed for. I think I said that. Um, a top and over in dialogue was um, inconstant. Um, those have been around a while. Constant was, uh, I think, Adam's suggestion. And the other two have been around since Sharp, but I pushed for those to be in dialogue. But they're written with these circles with dots over them, and it's it's just hard to read. Um, and like the, the simple, the jot actually does something fairly complicated. Um, so with BQN, it's, I think tacit programming is still a bit harder, especially if you're using a lot of trains. It's a bit harder to wrap your mind around than simple variable, one variable, two variable, whatever, explicit programming. Um, but BQN makes it so much easier to approach because it has these visual connections that you can go to instantly. So yeah, there's there's two questions uh, that I've sort of had in the back of my head, and this leads in perfectly to one of them. Speaking of tacit programming, before I ask that though, I'll I'll note that there's a great talk I believe you gave on the Dialog 18 features, Marshall. That's on like Dialog. Um, yeah, so that's when I introduced those three. Yeah, YouTube channel, and it's got. Um, at some point in that talk, it introduces those those new operators, and it's a fantastic talk and has these. I wouldn't actually say that they're easy to understand diagrams because uh, I didn't confuse, I didn't understand sort of them at first, and then I. Uh, but like once they're medium to understand, yeah, like once once you understand it, they're great. Like oh yeah, that's exactly what it does. So you you have to once you get past the little hump. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great talk, and we'll link that in the show notes. But speaking of tacit programming, you mentioned really early on uh, at the beginning of the podcast that. At some point, you had sort of discovered that, um, you know, partially through your writing of yeah, I, purely tacit programming. Is, yeah, that it's that you know, and I think Henry in the last episode made the same remark: is that it's very easy to go too far with tacit programming, and that variables uh, that sort of, you know, do the inter or name the intermediate um, like variables and state are helpful. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about you know? your thoughts on tacit programming and obviously uh, BQN supports it to some extent, but like why, what, what's formed your opinion that, that, you know, maybe Jay yeah. went too far that way. I think BQN might be the best uh, tacit language ever. Um, I can't think of anything else that would really compete. You could, there are some stack based languages that are okay, but um, the, those, those composition with the line operators for BQN really nail it. Um, so as far as the tacit versus explicit question, um, I'm a little more in favor of tacit than Henry, just based on, on having seen some of his J-code. Um, but yeah, generally, tacit is good for the very small things. The way I described it in that talk is that um, tacit programming uh, takes all your context and pulls it sort of outside the function. So um, for example, everything in a train, every other function, has the same either argument or two arguments. So there's this extra context that gets uh, pulled away. And that allows you to write less code a lot of the time because the context is implicit within the tacit function. But it also means that you don't have this context available to you immediately. So um, if you're really good at this, you can keep track of it in your head and work out what everything's doing. But, um, but eventually that adds up, um, especially if you're working with more than one or two values at a time. If you're working with three values, it's just really a pain to get them all shuffled through this tacit stuff. Um, 
And that's what I more or less force you to do in I, because um, I doesn't have any sort of scoping at all. It's got global variables that you can assign, but otherwise you're supposed to define your program as a bunch of tacit functions. And as I understand it, this is about how J was initially. And um, they pretty quickly, they, unlike I, had uh, actual users. So um, the user says, no, this doesn't work. And so they were forced to add functions. Um, and so then you get, with those functions, you get scoping. Um, and yeah, BQN goes further. BQN has complete lexical scoping, um, which uh, dialogues defens also have lexical scoping. The thing that they do that BQN doesn't is they don't allow you to form closures. So the syntax mostly prevents you from doing this. But even if you somehow smuggle a function outside of the execution of a function, when, when that function ends, its scope is just going to get yanked away from it. So, so you can't form a closure in dialog. Um, but yeah, so, so BQN goes, uh, and it doesn't do anything that JavaScript doesn't. It's, uh, it's a normal, um, normal lexical scoping idea. But it's just allowing you to use the normal style in addition to the tacit style. And so you can, you can pick your own personal mix. You can say, like I usually do, I'm, I'm really into tacit programming. Or you can say, I'm less into tacit programming. I've intentionally written some BQN code, like the markdown processor that, that builds my whole website. Um, I've intentionally written that in a simpler style that, that splits lines more and that has a lot more comments and that, uh, that you know, breaks things down just to, to know what it was like and to also have an example that, yeah, you can write BQN like this. If, if for some horrible reason you happen to not be me, um, <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can choose this other style. It's a trade-off, but I, I think having both available is, um, is really important because in some places tacit programming is really great and in some places tacit programming is really horrible. So if you put them both together, you can you can do a lot better than just purely explicit programming, and definitely a lot better than the purely tacit stuff. Yeah, when I when I was first started learning J, and um, I usually do that by just solving little, like I mentioned before, little mini leak code problems. I I was sort of uh, shocked at the way you had to write functions in J, which you mentioned before, like you you'd have to put it in little single quotes, and like the one effect that that had is you had no syntax highlighting. Like uh, GitHub just treats it as a string, and I was like, "This has got to be the worst language decision ever." Like, your every function you write just shows up as like a comment, you know, color. Um, and then I realized, oh, most of the time you want to try and write tacit functions. Um, and then so basically now, whenever I write something in J, I'm I try to write it tacit. Um, but this leads into sort of maybe the maybe what we can close on, unless if. Uh, Adam and Bob have other questions is that I, I as this podcast uh, goes on and as, as time goes on um, I'm trying to decide you know APL is currently my favorite array language uh, but I've I've am growing to love J more and more um, you know when I discovered under and J and when I discovered 13 colon which takes an explicit function and converts it into a tacit function like APL doesn't have anything like that um, so I'm, I'm, and so slowly, like I've got this graph in my head, you know, APL's up here and J's, you know, got at an incline, you know, at some point there's going to be, is there going to be a crossover, you know, B, BQN, I got to add to the list and start learning that to figure out, you know, what is the ultimate array language, um, not to throw shade on J, but you mentioned that, uh, you know, th there was a couple things that over time you, you know, we've talked about some of the things that are different from APL. Uh, can you talk about, you know, what are the a couple things that you you know definitely thought Jay should have, should have done differently or that you've done differently with respect to Jay? Um, like, 
Because I think you you started with J. That was what you yeah. learned in high well, school. Yeah. Well, and and yes, I had my own graph, and uh, well, uh, at the beginning, it's hard to even say. Well, of course, J is better than TI Basic, and I didn't even know how to write <laughs> loops in TI Basic. I was using go tos all over the place. Um, but so yeah, I have my own graph, and uh, and J has gone down on the graph. Um, and yeah, the the functions are a big part of it. Um, now J has fixed this in uh, in the latest version or the one before, um, mm. where now it's got this double bracket syntax, um, which you know two brackets is a lot more than one. Um, <laughs> but J, as I've used it, and I've I've used the only reason I use J now. Like since I started BQN, is either to to move my code over from J to BQN or to figure out what J does in a particular case. Um, so basically, not at all. But as I've used J, there's this this alpha function syntax. The worst thing about it to me is that it really discourages nesting. Um, but there's also the problem that even if it was all right for nesting, it wouldn't handle it very well because if you're in an inner function and an outer function has a variable, then the inner function doesn't see it, um, which Python also does this, and I also don't like it in Python. So um, Python allows you to declare a, a non-local variable to access one. J doesn't. Um, so this this just takes away a lot of the power of functions. Um, and um, so in this way, BQN is completely moving towards the mainstream. And I, I think a lot of the reason J was designed the way it was wasn't um, like definitely it was a deliberate choice, but I think, uh, Ken and Roger, um, they've worked, Ken pretty much entirely in J as far as I know, and, uh, Roger in J and C almost entirely, and other low-level languages. Um, but so they're, they're really not familiar with, they haven't used, uh, things like JavaScript that have, um, that have lexical scoping. And it took me a while uh, after I learned J to, to even learn that this was good, I think I slowly started to realize that, um, oh, hey, if you've got a function and you have a utility function that's only used there, you can put it inside that function. And, um, and then it's sort of, that tells you that that's where that function lives, is inside this one scope, so that's the only place it's used, um, which you typically wouldn't do in J. Uh, and and from there, I kind of slowly realized that, you know, having all this scoping stuff that allows you to to encapsulate things and say, well, here's this thing going on over here, here's this thing going on over there, where you have this nested structure, your your program is really useful. Um, and so in that respect, BQN just does what everyone else figured out 30, 40 years ago. Um, so other other problems with J. Um, there are a lot of little technical things. Um, one one other thing that I don't like is the way it handles namespaces. So J has what it calls locales, um, which are namespaces, but they're not first class objects. You can't you can't touch them in the language at all. What you do instead is you have a number or a string that refers to this namespace. So you create a namespace and then you get a string and you pass this string around and you pretend it's the namespace, but it's not. Um, and the issue with this is that, um, well, and first, it's really awkward. But second, um, when, when all that you have that's referring to the namespace is a number, well, that's just a number. You can't, 
you can't tell that number apart from any other number in the implementation. So the J implementation can't possibly tell when the last time you'll need the namespace is. It can't garbage collect them. Um, and that means you have to do manual memory management in a high-level array language on your namespaces, which is, um, that's not high-level. That's, that's very low-level. That's, I think that's just not how it should be. So in BQN, namespaces are first-class objects, and they're, um, um, there's a pretty nice syntax where you write, uh, the namespace is, is pretty much just, uh, it works like a function. So now we have lexical scopes. We can create closures. So a namespace is like a closure, but um, you write this double left arrow um, with a double stroke instead of a single stroke for assignment to say this variable is exported. And then you can, uh, you can use the dot syntax to see the exported variables in a namespace and so on. So that, I think, like dialog also has namespaces, but they're done in a very uh, C-sharp-like syntax because they were influenced by C-sharp. Um, and so BQN brings namespaces into APL, really. Um, and I found that that works. Um, like, of course, you don't want to be using mutable data when you can use immutable data. There's no reason to replace an array with a namespace. But namespaces do a lot of good stuff. Um, like, it's nice to have a file that returns a namespace where the file defines a bunch of functions. And so you get a namespace out, and you can import it, and then use dot syntax to say, well, I've got this file, and I'm using these functions from this file, and you see where everything comes from. So, yeah, with regards to mostly variables and things like that, BQN is just a lot cleaner than J. Awesome. Bob, Adam, do you have any final questions that we want to... I mean, I feel like we're going to end up having all our guests on multiple times uh, <laughs> at this point. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I hardly talked about the implementations, so there's that. You're not spoken about that other language. Well, you, there's a third, there's a third language. Is this breaking news? There's, there's also Singeli, which, uh, which is more or less implemented, which we might use to implement BQN. So Probably what was will. it called? It was called um, Singeli? Singeli. Yeah. It's, um, it's named after this genre of Tanzanian dance music. That's very, very fast, uh, at like 300 beats a minute and so, and so on. Oh, so, wow. uh, so if you write your code in Singeli, maybe it'll go that fast. <laughs> <laughs> There's also iridescence, no? Iridescence, how do you pronounce it? Yeah, that, that's, I thought that was that language. Oh, I didn't know that was, uh, it's changed name, okay. Yep. Well, it, no, no, it hasn't changed name. Oh, no, okay, it's just, just secret. Not oh, no, okay, it's just secret. It's not secret. Oh. <laughs> well, it's not secret anymore. I don't want to <laughs> say, like, the problem is I don't have time to, because to, I'm spending so much on BQ and I don't have time to sit down and, you know, write out how iridescence works and there's a, there's a lot of details to work out, so I don't want to make too much noise about it while it's still just uh, a vague concept. But it, it has a name, so. So one of the things I wonder about, because I was I had a discussion over email with Dave Thomas in the last week about languages that are really good, well-designed languages and why they're not popular. And the big reason, of, you know, in a lot of cases is because there's not a community to carry them forward or there's not a use. So for example, you have Swift and then you have Apple behind Swift. So Swift's going to march on into the future because you've got this huge base that's going to carry it through. Where do you see BQN going from now? How do you get there? Because it's, there's a lot of things to, as you described them and I think are really amazing. I want to go play with it, find out how that part works because there's limitations I'm working around right now that I won't have with BQN, I, I can see. 
But the fact that it's a great language, yeah. how does it get to that next level? Well, so the absolutely crucial linchpin is going on podcasts. <laughs> Aside from that, um, so I think we, we are in the process of slowly building a community. Um, so by we, I mean like partly the community, but, but mostly also me and uh, Zyma, who I, I unfortunately have not mentioned very much, but he's, um, he's uh, implemented all the C code in CBQN, which is the C implementation. Um, and he's done a lot of the, helped with a lot of the design. Um, a lot of it was done by the time I left Dialog, but he's offered you know a whole lot of advice and stuff. Um, so, the in terms of the community, um, we have this uh, this chat room you can join on either Matrix or Discord. Uh, that's linked on the BQN main page. We can link it as well. Um, and that's that's fairly active. We have. Um, you know, right now there's one person, other, um, me and Zyma are, are on all the time. There's one person who's working on a project now. He's been commenting for the last few days. And there are a lot of other people who come in occasionally. So it's um, it's it's nearly as busy as the APL Orchard, I would say, which is pretty cool. Um, it's, um, and I mean, you can only build so much of a community while the, while the language is still under development, but the... Uh, it's um it's less and less under development. It's more and more uh, complete and usable, and I've used it for all sorts of things. So I know it's uh, it's not vaporware. Um. So I think we're working on that, and yeah, I do recognize that the the community of a language is really important. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to do in BQN was make it easy for anyone to to write libraries, and I think uh, we have the basis for that. We don't have the actual you know, architecture that you would, we haven't finalized the design of what you do for a library, but but it's clear that um, one of the things is that, that BQN uses relative file paths, so you can just write your library and have files load one another really easily. You don't have to know where the library is loaded. Um, it seems to me when you when you were talking about locales and, and having them as, you know, in the case of BQN, they're an independent object, that would make a lot of that a lot easier. Yeah, the namespaces are really important for that. Um, so almost always, if you make a library, it's going to be a file that creates a namespace. Like a file can return just one value, but um, like you might use that if you've got you know one big function, you'd put it in a file. But mostly you'd be saying, all right, this file is namespace, and I know because I export the things at the top, and um, then... Uh, that makes it easier to distribute and to see, you know, here's this library. What actually is it? You can just read the top. Hopefully, the writers put all their exports and comments about what to do, and things like that. So, uh, so BQN should be easier for distributing code. I mean, right now we're um, we're we're kind of gathering interested people, and they're they're joining the chat room, and um, you know, most people post once or twice, say they're interested, and uh, maybe I'll hear from them again, maybe they're using it, I wouldn't know. Um, but uh, we're kind of gathering interest for the community now. Um, oh yeah, uh, I, I could mention, one of the things that interested me, when I first started BQN, I figured my users would be, like you, these pretty established um, array programmers. And what I've found is that the established array programmers um, now, your response is pretty positive, uh, 
and I, I definitely get a lot of positive feedback. But um, often they'll try it and, and they'll see a few things that are, that are just not like their language and they'll say, all right, well, um, this is too much work for me or whatever or, um, or something like that and, and just stick with what they're doing. So we've got a few, you know, regular array programmers on the, in the BQN chat room and um, they're not the ones who post BQN code often. What's, what I think is happening is that the people who have tried APL, who have maybe even used it for a while or a few years, but, but really didn't stick with it, those are the people who are trying BQN and who are most interested and who are, um, who are writing the, their little programs, testing things out and um, getting used to it. So that's, um, I don't know what I do with that information, but it's, it's an interesting thing to know that that's the group that I'm targeting, not, not the complete new people, although also more interest from that area than I'd expect, not the, um, not the experienced array programmers who already know everything, but the people who are, who've got a little bit of experience, but not that much. So for folks that have, uh, you know, an interest peaked and want to go type some BQN code in, is there something similar to like tryapl.org? Um, oh yeah, I mean, right on the BQN front page, there's a, there's a little copy of the REPL with some sample code. Um, and there's a, um, there's a, a REPL page as well, which, um, which a few people have commented is, is pretty nice and easy to use. It's based on NGN APLs from earlier. Um, that's NGN is Nick Nikolov, uh, who uh, worked with APL for a while, used to work at Dialog, is now working on K. Um, so yeah, you can definitely run it online. The, the JavaScript implementation is 100 or so times slower than the C implementation, but it's, uh, it's down to not really having noticeable lag now. If you write a really long program, it'll take a little while to compile it, because this is running a self-hosted compiler in JavaScript. Um, but yeah, definitely you can use it online, very usable. And CBQN, uh, if you're on Linux at least, just clone and make. I think um, it's probably going to run on other operating systems. I think we've had Windows users use it, but um, if you have problems with it, just come into the chat room and ask. So it's definitely pretty easy to get started. Um, and there's there's also, I've written, I've almost finished the documentation. There's some, there's like three and a half big tutorial pages to get you started. Um, so there's a lot of material you can read about it to, to get going. Awesome. That sounds like uh, we'll, we'll definitely put all of the links to, to those resources in the show notes, which... It's going to be the longest <laughs> show notes which I, ever. Yeah, I think it's a perfect transition. Bob, you were going to say uh, a couple things about the, the site and one, where to reach us, but also two, you know, what we have listed on, on our website. Yeah, a lot of times, um, you know, I'm not sure people are aware. If you go through the website, it's it's a lot harder for whatever reason. A number of podcast catchers, it's a lot harder to get access to show notes. But each episode has an extensive list of show notes, which Marshall pointed out earlier when we were before we started recording. Might not be the best name, although I think it's sort of the standard name of show notes. Really, what it is is a series of links that will take you exactly where you want to go for more information. So it's very useful um, to be able to go in and, um, and, and get information back out. When you hear something you're not sure about, quite often we're, we're uh, putting a link in that will actually explain things, which for people who aren't as experienced or sometimes we're, I mean, a lot of times when we're talking, we're using our hands because we're trying to 
explain things that are more visual, well, show notes is an easy way to get into that. And so if you go to arraycast.com, each episode has its own page, and there's a button that takes either to the show notes or to the transcript. So if you want to do a quick search on something, I found that's the easiest thing to do. As you click on the transcript, you can do a, a search through the text and find out exactly where we were talking about things. Also, I imagine for web crawlers and stuff, it makes it a little easier for people to spot things. Um, so there's that. And then also, the, the final thing I'd like to mention about the arraycast.com, if you want to send us an email, it's contact at arraycast.com and that will go straight to us we're pretty good about answering our emails we've had lots of uh, good positive feedback which has been fun we've had some feedback um, I think it was two episodes ago we were able to uh, take some uh, 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 feedback from a listener and actually incorporate that into an episode because we could address some of the, the issues that they raised so it doesn't always have to be positive we can we'll use it anyway we we aren't uh, we aren't proud we'll, we'll take negative information and turn it around on ourselves not that I'm looking for spam, but <laughs> I know what to do with spam, too. Um, I think that's the, the main things. Uh, go to arraycast.com for the episodes. You'll see show notes, and you'll see uh, transcripts. And uh, contact at arraycast.com if you want to get in touch with us. I think that's all I've got for that part. All right, awesome. And, yeah, I'll, I'll close out by saying thank you so much, Marshall. Uh, it was another uh, – these episodes where we bring on guests and we just get to pepper them with questions are by far my favorite. Um and I'll definitely be checking out BQN. Uh, it's been on my radar for a while now. But, um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I feel like we're definitely going to have you on again in the future to answer the remaining 990 questions that I have. Um, and, yeah, we'll get you to talk about the implementation and everything we didn't get to in this episode. So, yeah, once again, thanks so much for uh, spending your time with us. Yeah, thank you. All right. And I guess we'll finish by saying uh, happy array programming.